You are listening to When Policy Meets Practice from JFF, where we delve into the practical realities of education and workforce development policy with practitioners on JFF's Policy Leadership Trust. Welcome to the eighth episode of the When Policy Meets Practice series from JFF. Thanks for listening. I'm Paul Fain, the host. We're talking about early college programs for high school students in this episode, specifically dual or concurrent enrollment in community college courses. Research has found positive results from these programs. Participating students are more likely to graduate from high school, enroll in college, and complete. And studies, including a recent one using data from Massachusetts, show that dual enrollment can have the biggest impact on students of color and lower income students. Finally, when done right, these programs can save students time and money on their way to a credential. I spoke with Marie DeSanctis, president of the Community College of Denver, who's a former high school principal and who served in other K-12 roles. She talked about how best to offer high-quality college courses to high school students without discouraging them. Of course, at the end of the day, it is really critical that when students, high school students, are in a dual enrollment course, that they have faculty members that also embrace that these are high school students and we're going to hold them to the academic rigor, but be very, very supportive, be very engaging. Lee Goodson is the president and CEO of Tulsa Community College. She made the case for states to support these programs. Goodson also described how dual enrollment, including programs where students can earn an associate degree while they're still in high school, can help students stay engaged with their education. Those students, as we recruit them, we help them understand that they are college bound. And it's really exciting because we catch them before they decide they're not college bound. A lot of times they decide they're not college bound in their freshman or sophomore year of high school. And then they don't take the college prep coursework and they decide not to engage in post-secondary education. So we're catching them before they make that decision for themselves. At the end of the episode, I was joined by two experts to help us make sense of what we heard in the interviews. I spoke with Erica Cuevas, an associate director at JFF, who focuses on policies to improve pathways across K-12 and post-secondary education. Also joining us was Alexander Perry, an education policy advisor at Foresight Law and Policy. Alex also coordinates the College and High School Alliance. Okay, let's get to the conversation. So I'm speaking virtually with Marie DeSanctis. Hello, Marie. Hi, Paul. How are you? Doing well. So big topic here, but I thought I'd start just getting a sense from your perspective, which I know crosses geographies and, and sectors of education of what do you see is really driving the interest in dual enrollment and what are some of the incentives that institutions are responding to to, to bulk up their offerings? Sure, Paul. Well, I think across the nation, what's really driving the incentive is, of course, as a country, several years ago, we realized that we were going to need many more people in the talent pipeline with post-secondary credentials than we currently had, and a lot of jobs coming in the future that require those post-secondary credentials. So states across the nation started setting educational attainment goals and As they did so, they really started looking at not only the gap in meeting that demand, but more importantly, some pretty significant equity gaps when you look at people of color, people from low socioeconomic backgrounds. And dual enrollment or concurrent enrollment, depending on the state that you're in, 
really emerged as an opportunity to accelerate post-secondary credits and attainment for students. You know, our high schools have traditionally really engaged in advanced placement courses through College Board or the Cambridge Advanced International Certificate of Education, Cambridge ACE as it's known, the International Baccalaureate, all fantastic methods for accelerating credit. But there's been an emergence and, and resurgence of looking to our community colleges to also be able to award college credit, um, which is incredibly beneficial for for students as they take some of those general education requirements and even engage in career technical education and complete entire post-secondary degrees, including an associate of arts transfer degree while they're still in high school at a very low cost to them. I've got to think, given the concerns about a lost generation of students disconnecting between high school and college or in high school or in college, that concurrent enrollment becomes even more of an urgent need to, to keeping connected, particularly with the low income students of color who are struggling most in the pandemic. Absolutely, Paul. And, you know, the pandemic has been something that I don't think any of us are, are going to be able to wrap our minds around the longstanding effects of that for a while. But even pre-pandemic, you know, as a high school principal, it really, I can't even put into words, you know, I grew up in a family where it wasn't about was I going to college, it was which college. And I remember being very, very young and visiting college campuses and having my parents talk to me about what I wanted to be when I grew up and all of that included a college degree. And that's not the conversation that happens in all households for a variety of reasons. And we find students in high school that that conversation has never been held in their house. And in fact, maybe even just the opposite. If the conversation comes up in the house, the parents, families might be thinking, no, I don't want you to go away to college because that's going to take you away from the family. So it's it's an incredible dynamic that's really been incredibly exacerbated by the pandemic. But I really think that working together, high schools can leverage the opportunity of dual enrollment to not only accelerate those college credits, make sure that students see themselves as college going, but also use those credits to complete their high school requirements. In many cases, in many states, a lot of the college level courses also meet the requirements for their high school diploma. It's something that we probably don't recognize enough if we've just been on the college side of things or just been on the K-12 side of things. But there's people across this country that have had the great fortune of being in both and have immediately reached out across the aisle, if you would, as we've come through COVID to say, listen, we know that we have students in high school that kind of got lost in this pandemic. And how can we as a community college or from the K-12 side, hey, community college, can you help us accelerate these credits for students? Having experienced it again on both sides, any pieces of program design that are most crucial to get right, to make sure that you're helping students on those key pieces of, you know, maybe completing their high school credential, earning credits to college, and also feeling that college is for them. I do, Paul. There's, depending on where you are in the country, you know, you'll see dual enrollment numbers as just dual enrollment numbers. What you're not seeing within that large aggregate number is 
is most of the dual enrollment happening at the student's high school or is most of it happening at the college? And there's a very distinct difference there. High school students taking a dual enrollment course within their high school, yes, they're still getting that college credit, but they're less likely to see themselves as a college student. The bell's still ringing, the announcements are still coming across, the teacher may be a teacher that they've already had. When it's happening mostly at the high school, you also have the challenge of being able to credential high school teachers from the community college. That requires a master's degree in most places. And then are you going to find teachers within a high school that you can credential outside of your traditional gen ed courses, English, math, science, social studies, those types of things. So it makes it a little more difficult, particularly in the career and technical education area to have students complete. At the end of the day, the cost is really a differentiating factor. There are some states that it does not cost the student anything. They don't pay for textbooks, they don't pay for tuition, they don't pay for fees, very little red tape other than what naturally exists to kind of create the student record over at the community college they need to apply and get their student number, that type of thing. Other states have all kinds of different funding where the student ends up being responsible for either some or all of the tuition, the fees, the books, and have to jump through multiple hoops in order to get state aid. All of those things really start to erode our ability to provide equity within the dual enrollment process. I would think it's maybe a guess I should make right now, but most state capitals and here in Washington, that dual enrollment would be favored across both sides of the aisle. Never know about that, but are there key things that you would like policymakers to hear about how to support the growth of this? And I know besides resources and resources, I'm guessing being number one, but streamlining the process, other things you want to mention there? Well, I always put the student at the center. So the easier you make it for the student to participate in dual enrollment, the better. So please don't put barriers in their way of needing to, on top of having to apply to the community college, then apply for state aid, have to be paying for fees, those types of things. It's interesting when you look at the state of Florida, they had a couple of different legislative changes that you start to see a spike in dual enrollment. And I'm not necessarily saying this is good or bad because more is not always better. It's the quality. Um, but in about 2009, 2010, there was a legislative change that incentivized high schools through their school grading formula to have students engage in accelerated mechanisms. Those included AP, IB, ACE, but also dual enrollment. So why was there a spike after 2009, 2010 legislative session? I can tell you that having been a high school principal, having that closed system of accelerated mechanisms through AP, IB, ACE was something that I can very tightly control. Dual enrollment was not something that we necessarily promoted as high school principals, sad to say, but honest, because it adds a layer of complexity to your work that did not necessarily have to be there. You also then have to balance this notion of holding students accountable and harmless at the same time. 
if a student participates in an advanced placement course and they don't get the three or better on the AP exam, okay, it doesn't follow them forever. Dual enrollment becomes a college transcripted credit. And if that student doesn't do well, that grade is going to stay with them forever. So how do we, from a policy standpoint, hold students accountable? Don't just let them take college level courses with no consequence, but at the same time, do we really want to hold them to that grade in that class forever and ever and ever? because of a decision that they made. And maybe we're trying trying to stretch themselves and, and take a dual enrollment credit. All of these, I think, are significant considerations. How easy is it for the K-12 school district to work with a community college, the funding, the incentive for the high school to engage in something that they now have multiple layers of complexity as opposed to the regular complexity that already exists in a high school and the cost of the student and the procedures that a student needs to go through in order to engage in dual enrollment. You know, that balance you mentioned of, of trying to stick to academic rigor, but keep students encouraged and, and to not discourage a ninth grader or a 10th grader who had a bad experience made me wonder, are there types of introductory courses or approaches from the, the community college side that work best in getting students kind of working toward college? You know, Paul, this is always an interesting question because um, what you don't want to do is have students accumulate a bunch of credit that then is going to impact them down the road if they are federal Pell Grant recipients and starts eating up their elective bucket of their program of study. And, you know, that's just, it's unfortunately something that, that happens. So, you know, you wanna tend to stick with things that are transferable across all degrees, your English composition, a math course, be that college algebra or statistics, uh, intro to psychology, the types of courses that you don't necessarily need to know what a student wants to be when they grow up in order for them to take those. There has been a lot of positive progress, though, with school districts and community colleges that have entered into alternate dual enrollment agreements that reduces the grade point average required for the student to engage, maybe even releases them from taking the entrance exam placement test type of thing and has a kind of a co-requisite model of a student life skills with an English composition course or a student life skills with a psychology or sociology course, something that further supports the student. Of course, at the end of the day, it is really critical that when students, high school students are in a dual enrollment course, that they have faculty members that also embrace that these are high school students, and we're going to hold them to the academic rigor, but be very, very supportive, be very engaging, try to create the very best uh, learning experience for those students. The last thing we want to do is put students who did not necessarily see themselves as college students in a college course, then they have a really bad experience, and they're definitely not going to college. 
Well, Marie, we'll leave it there. You've given us a lot to chew on. I, I really appreciate your time, knowing it's a particularly busy time and the expertise that you brought to this discussion. Thank you, Paul. Next up is Lee Goodson. Stay tuned. I'm speaking with President Lee Goodson from Tulsa Community College. How are you? I'm doing great, Paul. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. I know it's a busy, stressful time for everyone running a campus these days or anyone working on one, but we're here to talk about dual enrollment or concurrent enrollment. I'm just curious what sort of change you've seen over the last decade or so and and what it's meant for your institution and your students. Absolutely. We are at Tulsa Community College deeply involved in dual and concurrent enrollment, and we have several levels of programming related to that now. Before, I think a couple of decades ago, dual enrollment was a qualified high school student that was able to take a few college classes their senior year, right? And that may have been two each semester, so they graduated with 12 hours or six, 12, maybe 18 hours when they graduated from high school and they got a little bit of a jump start on some of their basic requirements. I think now we see all sorts of programs in dual and concurrent enrollment across the nation, and some schools are further into it than others. We've progressed here at Tulsa. We still have the highly qualified high school students that take a few hours their senior year, and now we have a lot more juniors. And then we also have quite a few students that are trying to complete 30 hours or more before they graduate from high school. And now, concurrent enrollment where the student is still in their K-12 setting and putting some classes in there is about 10% or more, 10 to 12% of our student population. And now we have earn a degree, graduate early. And this is a program where we recruit the student in eighth grade. There is a family commitment. We target first generation students. And then in ninth grade, they take a whole year of preparation In 10th grade, they start taking college-level courses, just a couple. And then in 11th and 12th grade, their junior and senior year, they're taking full loads of college-level courses. So earn a degree, graduate early means that they graduate with an associate's degree and they're ready to transfer to a university. Right now, we are pretty focused on a transfer program for that. So those students, as we recruit them, we help them understand that they are college-bound. And it's really exciting because we catch them before they decide they're not college bound. A lot of times they decide they're not college bound in their freshman or sophomore year of high school. And then they don't take the college prep coursework and they decide not to engage in post-secondary education. So we're catching them before they make that decision for themselves. But what's really exciting about earn a degree graduate early is two years ago, we probably had 30 students graduate with an associate's degree from Tulsa Community College that also graduated with a high school degree their same year. Last year, we had somewhere in the 50s. This year, we're going to be at like 134, I think, when our final graduation numbers come in. And next year, since we've been building up the cohorts, we'll be at 250. Our goal is to have what I'm calling an edge county where every student in the county of Tulsa has an opportunity to get an associate's degree as they're graduating from high school. Well, those are encouraging trend lines. And I mean, obviously right now where every community college leader is worried about 
a population of, of recent high school graduates who are disengaged from education. Right. You're keeping them motivated along the way, beginning as freshmen or sophomores, where we, as the data shows, you said, that's where students often become off track in terms of pursuing right. education after high school. What are some of the structural pieces that are most necessary to make that piece of it work, to make that sure. keeping the student kind of motivated and encouraged as they're doing a lot of work, more work than you would in high school? More work than you would in high school. They're very focused. And we tell them that this is their big deal in high school. If they decide to take on the EDGE program and apply to it and they're actually accepted, which requires a family commitment, this is their big deal. I'm not going to say we don't have any that play football or any that are in the band, but they are fairly warned ahead of time that it's a huge commitment. So structurally, I'll talk about that in kind of two different levels, Paul, and that is internally, we have, I wouldn't say a large staff, but a full staff that is only focused on concurrent enrollment students. And that includes some advising, that includes enrollment services, that includes communication with the high school counselors, it includes communication with the families, they run a special orientation for concurrent students. We manage wraparound services for our concurrent students to make sure they know how to get in touch with our tutoring labs for science, math, reading, writing. And typically these students come in ready especially if we catch them in eighth grade and they take that ninth grade of prep year, they're ready along the way. They still need those wraparound services. And then they also need some career counseling along the way. It's really nice to be able to focus on the student in this environment. And that's taken some practice on our part to have high school students in our college level courses or to dedicate a college level course to a group of high school students. We've changed the professional development offerings for our faculty so that they are prepared for students that are at a different time in their life. And it's also changed how we interact with high school counselors and how they make recommendations to their students and what they recommend to their students that they achieve before high school, let alone after high school. So I think that it has really changed the landscape of college and especially community college because Community colleges are really the ones that have developed this over the last few decades. And in that same vein, I would say now the universities are also catching on, want to be part of the equation, and understandably so, because it's, it's a huge part of the student population now. As a last question, you know, as you've been talking, I've been thinking about this sounds like to do this right requires resources. To, Absolutely. to have that advising capacity and career options and to make sure that the faculty are involved and the structure of the courses. And you also mentioned the competition that is rising with institutions that are often more resourced. I mean, if you had a something that you could leave with policymakers about what community okay. colleges need to do this and to serve the students you serve, anything that you would give them as a last thought? I would say structurally, the disruption that we talked about at the very beginning has, I would say, caused a tremendous need for policymakers to look at the statewide structure for how concurrent is delivered, how it's reimbursed, who's responsible for it. Can everybody be in the market? Is there 
going to be a cap on reimbursement? Is the price set by the state regions? There's a lot of things to consider. And I know we're not the only state that has gone through this process. In fact, we just had a JFF conversation not that long ago, and someone mentioned Ohio. And they have set, uh, they have a pretty standardized structure for how concurrent enrollment in the state of Ohio works. And that is how institutions are either incentivized or not incentivized to participate. And so I think the, with the disruption it's brought to the higher education market, I think there needs to be some attention by policymakers to go ahead and try to kind of smooth that out and standardize it in some way. Otherwise, it kind of can create a lot of conflict among institutions. And what it does, so for anyone that's been involved in Pathways, we know that cafeteria style doesn't work. And that's what happens is you have so many people in the market, it's hard for families to decide what will work and what doesn't. And what's really important, as we said from the beginning, is we want students to be on a path. And so however the state system can structure that so students are on a path is really important. Well, President Goodson, I really appreciate you talking this through with me, particularly given all that's going on at your institution and everywhere. So thank it's you. It's my and pleasure, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. All right, here comes our sense-making segment. I'm here with Alex Perry and Erica Cuevas. How are you guys doing? Good, Paul. How are you? Doing well. So let's try to make sense of this. Let's start with Alex. In terms of equity, anything jump out from what you heard? Any kind of key lessons you took away from what the two speakers said? Yeah, I mean, I think the experiences in both of these colleges reflect dual enrollment movement for the nation as a whole, right? I mean, what do we know about dual enrollment? We know from now a huge number of research studies that students who have access to dual enrollment are more likely to access college and they're more likely to complete college. But all of the data we have shows there are considerable equity gaps still to be closed for students of color, for low-income students, for students with disabilities, for many different categories of student. And some of the initiatives, like we heard from both of the speakers, one way of helping to get more students these opportunities to push forward. Because, I mean, you know, at this moment in particular, with uh, post-secondary enrollments way down as a result of COVID, right? Um, dual enrollment is one of those tools that's in the toolbox of, look, we know it helps more students access college and we know it helps more students complete college and we need more strategies like that right now in order to be serving this today's students and helping them to be successful in their college and career journeys. Absolutely. So, Erica, I mean, we heard the, the resources matter here. It, it, these, this is tough work and it takes takes money. Any other concerns or, or pieces that you'd want to stress and how to open up equity opportunities for more students? Yeah, that's a really great question, Paul. And I think there are a lot of policy implications to what we heard from the earlier conversations. When thinking about you know, policymakers should be thinking about designing dual enrollment in a way that closes equity gaps rather than putting up unnecessary barriers for today's students. So we're thinking about students of color, English learners, students who are currently experiencing poverty, students with disabilities, etc. So there are several policy factors really driving equity gaps today in dual and concurrent enrollment. And I'll just name a couple of those. So one includes 
eligibility into dual enrollment programs. There have been studies that show that states have been setting eligibility requirements that limit access to dual enrollment and primarily open up access for students who are most academically advanced. So policymakers should be thinking about closing equity gaps into program access, finding new ways in which they can gauge student readiness in college level coursework, and not just look at GPA or not just focus on one standardized test, but think about multiple measures, such as maybe high school attendance, portfolios of work, thinking about GPA over time or teacher nomination. So multiple measures into entry, or even thinking about automatically enrolling eligible students into an advanced coursework and giving students the opportunity to opt out if that's not what they want. One of the pieces that really jumped out to me was this isn't just about exploration here. I mean, the clock starts running on your Pell eligibility. You know, the stakes are pretty high here to get this right. Erica, any kind of program design aspects that can do a good job of making sure that students are getting the most out of this experience? Yeah, I think what's so critical is that there has to be intentionality behind dual enrollment programs, ensuring that students and their needs are really front and center. And this is something that both Dr. Goodson and Dr. DeSantis brought up in their talks with you, Paul. They both referred about the need for intentionality. And to unpack that even further, what it means is ensuring students are not having their time wasted by taking dual enrollment classes that lead to nowhere. It means ensuring that dual enrollment courses connect to multiple pathways that are linked to a range of academic and career options. Those pathways should help students advance and really lead to no dead ends. So means eliminating random acts of course taking, ensuring courses transfer, ensuring students have those robust wraparound supports along the way. Intentionality is also about putting students' needs front and center. So those are a couple of things that I would add to that. Absolutely. Alex, anything policymakers can do to, to help on that front? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the key elements here is Obviously, there is a big focus on student cost associated with participating in these programs. But from a policy perspective, you know, obviously a ton of attention goes into how to reduce or eliminate those costs. But ultimately, that's not enough to build that kind of high quality policy architecture for these programs. And so in addition to some of those equity strategies that Erica was describing, I would also add in terms of helping provide students with those intentional pathways into degrees or credentials, A, the credit transfer mechanisms are essential, right? Ensuring that there is seamless credit articulation between public institutions, hopefully to private institutions in the state as well for those credits that students earn in dual enrollment, because those students in particular, you know, some students will graduate with a degree or credential from high school with a college degree or credential in hand, but most won't, right? They're graduating with a semester, a year's worth of college credit. So they need to go somewhere and do something with that. And so those credit transfer policies are really important. And I would also say to that point, what the state pays for also matters, right? We know there are many states that are funding mechanisms, uh, many regions, localities, cities, they will have some kind of funding mechanism for these programs. And obviously, the schools and the colleges will arrange those programs based on what they get paid for. And so one way we see this happen in Indiana is that to um, encourage the school districts and the colleges to be really thoughtful in offering those highly transferable courses, those extremely applicable technical courses that 
the state basically says we're only going to pay for this limited number of courses. And so that's where you see most of the dual enrollment take place in Indiana. And as a result, it's all highly transferable and those students can move out with it. I think the way we conceptualize our work is obviously cost is a big factor, but if you don't have the access policies, if you don't have the transfer policies, if you don't have the course quality policies, if you don't have policies that support having enough credentialed teachers in place, right, you're, you're ultimately going to struggle to design to reach your goals in dual enrollment, which is to have lots of students taking it who are capable of taking it and for there not to be those equity barriers and for those students to be taking those intentional courses that lead towards a something. So looking forward, I mean, we know this has been a popular pathway for a growing number of students. In the pandemic, we've got, you know, really a lost generation crisis with disengagement among low-income high school students and, and young adults. Seems like part of the solution. I know JFF, I believe, is one of several groups that called for including dual enrollment in the free college proposals. Looking forward, what's going to be some of the best ways to make sure that we get this sort of good growth of this promising practice? Let's start with Erica. Yeah, that's a really great question. I think it's about ensuring the policy design for these programs is intentional. As we know, dual enrollment looks very different from state to state and region to region. So ensuring that moving forward, that place or zip code is not going to be a determining factor of whether or not students have access to that. So yes, JFF did support the proposal to really think about including dual enrollment as included in the free community college proposal, because we don't want to disincentivize either high school students from taking dual enrollment. If they have to end up paying for dual enrollment while in high school, and then they could later on get colleges courses free while they go to community college, we want to make sure that there's good incentives for students to take these courses, that they're supported along the way, and that leadership is really stepping in here to put equity front and center in policymaking. Alex, last words from you. I think anything related to these post-secondary transition programs, there always needs to be an extra effort to ensure they're part of the conversation. These are powerful tools that can, when designed properly and with the right policy structures to support them, help many more students both access and complete college. But there really needs to be a much bigger push, both on the K-12 and the higher ed side, to ensure that these opportunities are part of the conversation. It's much harder to align the two systems, right? It's easy to understand why we go back to our K-12 silo and why we go back to our higher ed silo and just want to live within those two spaces. But really the magic happens in between. And even though it's much more difficult to get those two sectors aligned and get them working properly, it is ultimately massively to the benefit of students to do so. And so that's not a reason not to try. Well, Alex, Erica, thanks for talking with me to help make sense of this for our listeners. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate the opportunity. And thanks, I Paul. I believe this was the last of the last words for the last scheduled podcast. So thanks to everybody for listening as well. Bye.